0: I'm an MK, a minister's kid. And although for some that proved to be a terrible experience, for me it was a fantastic privilege. My parents were great, godly examples. And at an early age, I put my trust in Jesus as my Lord and Saviour. Growing up in the 60s, I still have immensely fond memories of the Sunday night gospel service. The church would be packed out, and Dad would always preach a clear, passionate message, speaking of the work of Jesus, and pleading with people to put their trust in him. I remember the excitement of scanning the congregation and looking out for visitors, wondering whether they'd get saved that night. And over the weeks, many of them were soundly converted. And as I listened to my dad declaring the gospel, as only a passionate Scotsman could, it felt as if I'd got saved all over again. It was so clear, so plain, so wonderful. How could anyone not respond to the invitation to come to such a wonderful saviour? How could anyone go out of the building at the end of the evening, rejecting such amazing grace and love? You see, Sunday night was gospel night. Sunday night was all about how you could get into the kingdom. But then came Monday. And Monday wasn't about getting into the kingdom. It was about living in the kingdom and it seemed to operate under different rules. And there was a ton of stuff that I knew I shouldn't do. For one thing, I knew there was a great distinction between Christians and the world. The world was dirty and sinful and was to be avoided at all costs. So we didn't play cards drink alcohol, dance, go to the theatre or to the cinema well, at least until Julie Andrews and the Sound of Music and we weren't allowed to play in the garden on a Sunday and in those days, I think the plan was to live by those rules and pluck up the courage to invite people to come along to the Sunday night gospel service The gospel was the way in The gospel was what you preached to sinners. But then, having got saved, you lived by a seemingly unconnected set of rules, as much to do with culture as with teaching from the Bible. But as I read the New Testament now, it strikes me that the primary audience for the gospel message was the community of faith, believers. The gospel is not only the way in, it's the way along, it's the way through and it's the way out. Yes, of course, the gospel is good news that must be announced. Yes, of course, it's as the Holy Spirit opens the eyes of the spiritually blind through wonderful gospel truths that they're saved. Yes, of course. The gospel must be understood and declared with theological rigour and precision. Yes, of course, we must defend these truths and confront those who want to take away from or add to this message. But we must understand that the gospel is not only to be declared and believed, it's also to be lived. Gospel truths must shape gospel lives. Let me take you back to Titus chapter 3. Listen to Paul as he unpacks the gospels. there in verses 3 to 7. He said, At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another, But when the kindness and love of God, our Saviour, appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Saviour, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Now, that's an amazing, that's a glorious definition of the gospel. What a superb summary of the salvation message. And who should this message be preached to? Who's the intended audience? Is this a Sunday night gospel service for the lost? Well, have a look at verse 8. It says, this is a trustworthy saying, And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. You see, this gospel message, this trustworthy saying is to be stressed to believers, to those who have trusted in God. And the reason the gospel must be preached to believers is that they may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. You see, the gospel isn't just the way in, it's the way along. And it's only when believers have properly grasped the gospel that they can begin to live lives which truly commend Christ. It's only the gospel. That goes on exposing our sin and our need. It's only the gospel that truly humbles us. It's only the gospel that brings us back time and again to the mercy and grace of such a wonderful saviour. It's only the gospel that should shape the local church. You see, you can construct the most attractive Christian community. You can preach the sharpest sermon. You can use the most gripping multimedia displays. You can have the best musicians. You can serve the best coffee and donuts. But unless you're able to show the gospel in your communities through gospel-shaped living, then humanly speaking, no one will come near you. No one will hear the message. No one will be saved. And that's precisely the situation that Titus faced in Crete. Crete was tough. Paul had seen something of the south coast while travelling to Rome for trial. And it seems that about four years after he was released from his first Roman imprisonment, Titus accompanied Paul to this island where he was left to set the church in order. That young church had probably begun when Jewish converts returned to the island following the events of Pentecost, because you'll notice that Cretans are named there in Acts chapter two, verse 11. But it was tough going, pagan, immoral, hedonistic, obsessed with power and celebrity, just like every city in the world. And Titus's job was to sort out that small fledgling Christian community And he was to do it by making sure that every church had a leader who not only knew the gospel, but lived it out as well. Now, you know these qualifications well enough there uh, there in Titus chapter 1 and verses 6 to 8. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient, since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. And then as you follow through the letter, after instructions to various groups within the church, for example, he addresses the older man and the older women and then the younger women and the younger men, Paul then gives a gospel summary embracing all God's people. He writes there in chapter two, verse 14, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own eager to do what is good. You see, pagan Crete and indeed the whole of the Roman Empire, was only ever going to be reached as believers modelled gospel truths. And when you read the literature of the time, you discover it was the way that Christians lived that alerted the surrounding society to the value and reality of what they declared. So so do you get it? We're to live gospel-shaped lives for gospel-shaped purposes and it's only as we truly understand the gospel that we'll live gospel-commending lives and it's as we live gospel-commending lives that we create a context for gospel truths to be heard and considered. Barriers are broken down, prejudices are confounded, interest is stirred. So as we draw things to a conclusion, let's try and work out what gospel-shaped living actually looks like and what that'll mean for you and me in practice. Go back to Titus 3 verses 3 to 7 and the gospel summary that Paul includes there, outlining the things that Titus is to stress to the Cretan Believers. Let let me read that to you again. It is such an important section. Titus 3, 3 to 7. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Saviour, appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Now, maybe you'll allow me to sum up for the sake of simplicity and time, what gospel-shaped living looks like. And I'll do so with four H's. I'm sorry, it's a preacher thing. But it helps maybe to help us remember. You see, number one, we're to be people of humility, people of humility. And of course, that's what Paul explicitly says at the end of verse two. He says, show true humility toward all men. And he hammers home this lesson by emphasising two gospel truths. Firstly, we need to understand again how sinful, rebellious, vile and lost we really were before God. Did you notice it there in verse three? At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. And yet this is a gospel lesson that we forget so soon. We start comparing ourselves to others, we start preening ourselves, we start boasting of all our achievements, we start retweeting anything nice that's been said about us, we start decorating our Facebook page with all our achievements. Friends, we need to hear the gospel again We need to be reminded again how lost and helpless we were, how stained through with sin every faculty is, how we need to be humbled alongside our Christian brothers and sisters, honouring them above ourselves. I love this quote from Tim Keller. Tim Keller said, the thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us, because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself, it is thinking of myself less. And then secondly, notice how Paul not only talks about human helplessness, He emphasizes the divine initiative in this whole gospel work. He saved us, beginning of verse five. He saved us, second half of verse five. He poured out on us generously the Holy Spirit, verse six, having been saved by his grace, verse seven. You see, there's nothing here that I can boast of. Anything that's ever been achieved of lasting value in Christ's kingdom has come from him in the first place he's done it not me and that's what the gospel reminds me of that's why the gospel is the perfect antidote to our society's self-glorifying values that's why i need to keep hearing it let alone declaring it so we're to be a people of humility but then secondly we're to be a people of harmony of harmony see paul describes the natural state of sinful man as living in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Just have a look at social media and you'll see this amply illustrated. But as he tells us in verse two, we're to slander no one. We're to be peaceable and considerate. In other words, we're to work out in practice what it means to be part of God's new community. Christian harmony is derived from and modelled upon the intimate, loving, self-giving, other, delighting unity within the Godhead. And that should flow into us and out from us. And Titus chapter 3 is full of these Trinitarian truths. Just have a look at verses 4 to 6. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. You see the the whole of the Trinity involved there. You see the gospel breaks down the crippling individualism of our age. It's a signpost to the coming kingdom. It models the community that our hearts were made for. See, the church is one of the most glorious advertisements for the gospel, radiating community in an age of lonely and fractured lives, or at least it should be. People of harmony. Thirdly, we're to be people of happiness, happiness. Actually, I have to say happiness isn't the best word here, but because joy starts with a J and not an H, then happiness will have to do You see, we mustn't forget that the gospel is, by definition, good news. It's wonderful news. It's the best news anyone can hear. And you can sense that as Paul gives this gospel summary, just just look out for those nouns and adjectives that just begin to flow out from this passage. Again, Titus 3 verses 4 to 7. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared. He saved us not because of righteous things we've done but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Lord so that having been justified by his grace we might become heirs. Having the hope of eternal life. What a wonderful combination uh, of all these nouns and adjectives. You see joy and gratitude should be the hallmarks of the Christian life. I remember an Iranian friend of ours coming into our church building uh, for the first time uh, and uh, he looked in uh, the way our church building in Bristol was constructed was it had glass frontage so when we opened the doors folks could see in. And Razor looked in. He'd just come, he'd just uh, arrived as a refugee and he, he saw the inside of our church. It was the evening, dark on the outside, light on the inside and uh, he said people seem to be having a great time. It was as if there was a party going on in that place. So he, he said I'm gonna go in and he came in and he started asking and God by His grace saved Uh, Now we weren't sort of swinging off the chandelier gold dust charismatic types, but we were people who loved the Gospel. You see, we live in an age of unrivalled wealth, but also of unparalleled misery. Gospel-shaped lives are going to stand out like points of light in a dark place, be people of happiness. But fourthly, finally, we're to be people of hope. You see, we have a future and it's glorious. Suffering won't crush us and death won't defeat us. As Paul tells us in verse seven, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. We have been saved. We are being saved. We will be saved. This is all part of the gospel. This is all part of the glorious good news that should mark us out. See, the world tells us we're products of chance. The world tells us that the strong will survive and the weak will go to the wall. The world tells us that death is the end and that all I ever was will just be subsumed in the earth again. The Bible, however, tells me that I'm a joint heir with Christ The Bible tells me that when Christ appears, I shall be like him, for I shall see him as he is. The Bible tells me nothing can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Bible tells me that God will dwell with his people, wiping every tear from their eyes, for the old order of things will have passed away. The Bible tells me the glory of God will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. The Bible tells me that all God's people will be saved, not one will be lost. The Bible tells me that we win. Yeah, I have a hope. I have a confidence. I have a purpose. I serve a gracious, promise-keeping God. And Paul tells Titus that these are the glorious gospel truths that he is to stress to the believers on Crete. And he is to stress them so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. More literally actually means that those who have trusted in God may take careful thought as to how they can be devoted to doing good, careful thought as to how you can be devoted to doing good. You see, these things are to be considered, they're to be thought about, mulled over, looked into, dwelt upon. This sort of gospel character is not formed in a moment in the red hot cauldron of an emotional sermon, but over the days as gospel truths are lingered over and treasured in. And coolly and carefully applied. What a witness this is to a hopeless world. What a wonderful gospel that permeates every area of my life. What a privilege to serve such a saviour. What a responsibility to so show the gospel that I might speak the gospel. Well, may the Lord use you in whatever is your particular setting, to so know the gospel, to so love the gospel, and and love the saviour of of the gospel, that the gospel will naturally come through you. We so often think, first and foremost, it's about proclamation, that it's the Sunday night mentality. My friends, my, my brothers, my sisters, it's It's about knowing the gospel, living the gospel, and God, by his grace, granting us opportunities to speak the gospel to the people that we have been loving and caring about and doing good to. That's how we can do gospel in these COVID days. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would help us to honour you, to glorify you, to so know the gospel, to so love the gospel that it would grip our hearts and and grip the way that we live. We want to be those sort of people who are full of joy, who are humble, who just love to live in harmony with one another, but have that glorious hope that we know where we are going, we know who's in charge. Father, have mercy, we pray. And grant that the gospel in these days would go out, not because we have great gospel techniques, but because a great gospel message has gripped our hearts. And we pray for the glory of King Jesus. Amen.